Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Penny Livingston Stark, sitting in for Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Jeff Lawton. My name's Penny Livingston Stark, and I co-direct the Regenerative Design Institute in Bolinas, along with my husband, James Stark, and we also manage the Commonweal Garden Farm in collaboration with Commonweal, and we hosted Jeff Lawton in June uh, to do a permaculture training. I co-teach it along with myself and some other instructors, and Jeff came here uh, from Australia, and one of the reasons we invited him to come participate with us in our trainings is because he's been doing really, really extraordinary work in dry lands, uh, primarily in the Middle East. And uh, the work that he's done applying the principles and methods of permaculture design in Jordan and Syria have had remarkable results on both harvesting uh, rainwater in a very dry area as well as uh, sequestering nutrients back into the soil again. Uh, Permaculture design, I believe, offers an incredible promise of a number of potential solutions to very large ecological problems. Uh, Right now, what we're looking at is uh, creating agricultural systems that actually sequester carbon, atmospheric carbon using plants, and bringing it back into the soil again. And there's evidence to show that if we continue to do this in a on a large scale, on broad scale agriculture, we could potentially uh, sequester uh, atmospheric carbon and start to bring the CO2 levels down significantly. Uh, back to pre-industrial levels. And um, that's a very big statement, and um, we're double-checking and triple-checking the research on this, but right now it's looking really promising that uh, the right kind of agriculture could be uh, offering a a big, large-scale solution to uh, climate change and CO2 buildup in the atmosphere. Um, permaculture also offers promise in other large-scale issues like energy efficiency and creating uh, low-tech energy solutions for heating, cooling, pumping water, growing food, um, creating local-based economies so that the loop, uh, the resource loop is is closer to home and therefore not requiring so many fossil fuels to transport food and other basic needs to people, food and water. Um, And so what we're finding is that it was through design that we've created a lot of the problems that we are faced on the world today on how we use our fossil fuels, the level of inefficiency that we run uh, and extract our resources and then use them and then they all end up in the landfill and just this whole loop has been a at this very wasteful loop has been by human design and so 
We also believe that it's by human design that we can get out of this and turn the ship around and use our creativity and hopefully our political will to change the way we're doing things now and start being more respectful of the resources that we have and uh, honoring them in a way where we're not just wasting them and polluting them and sending them to the landfill after, you know, they break. We're actually living in a very exciting time in humanity's history, I believe. And it's a profound time of transformation, um, transformation of consciousness, transformation of humanity's relationship to the earth. Um, and permaculture is a key component to offering solutions. Uh, that's the fundamental conversation we have is, what are the solutions to some of the large systemic problems that we're faced with on the earth today? And many of them are related to our cultural practices. And the word permaculture comes from uh, the idea of permanent culture, meaning not how can we keep things the way they are, but how can humanity sustain itself on this planet for an indefinite period of time? And rather than just being sustainable, which means, you know, let's just keep sustaining ourselves, we're looking at a more abundant model of a regenerative culture where we're actually giving back more to the earth than what we take. And we give back more to our community than what we take. And we give back more water back to the earth than what we use through land patterning. And um, that's a big piece of, of Jeff's work, is water infiltration back into the earth. And the good news is that the solutions are here. We know how to harvest water and take all our rainwater and put it back into the earth where it belongs or store it for it where it could be more useful into the dry season. We know how to grow food without using chemicals. We know how to create non-toxic buildings. We have the technology at our fingertips. The question is, is our, do we have the political will and the vision and the inspiration to actually manifest these solutions on a large scale throughout the world. I feel very hopeful that we can turn the ship around and start living a life more in balance and harmony with the natural systems on the planet. Uh, our awareness is leading us more and more to the realization that what we do to the earth, we do to ourselves. And if we take out our wetlands, for example, we're um, essentially cutting out our kidneys and our livers because the wetlands is the purification system for excess nutrients in that that run through the system, including pollution. And if we cut out our wetlands... You know, we're really cutting out that capacity for the earth to clean itself and clean the water. 
So the idea of creating wetlands is a big, big part of the solutions that we offer in permaculture. Um, they're so valuable for habitat. They're so valuable for plants and productivity and agricultural systems. And what we find is as we bring the water back into the earth again and get it back in the soil, after a few years, springs that have dried up start to flow again and creeks start to run longer and longer into the dry season that dry up in the summer. And soon I see our world to start to transform and turn greener again. You know, looking at the earth from a satellite view, there's a lot of brown on the continents, including places like the Sahara Desert. The Sahara Desert, we used to grow rice there. It used to be incredibly lush and wet. And I believe it can be again if we just start adopting some of these broad-scale solutions. Um, so I really would love to invite you to explore uh, permaculture design for yourself. There are numerous websites and organizations throughout the globe that are teaching permaculture, that are practicing permaculture, and that are building permacultural models. And I believe that funding needs to start going towards these models now and start supporting them so that they become they can become living examples for others to follow. There's a lot of research that needs to be done as well. There's a lot of data that needs to be collected. But I don't even know if we really have time for that. I think we just need to start uh, building richly abundant ecosystems that grow our food, produce our fuels, produce our um, building materials, and really start thinking holistically, bioregionally, and locally in many ways to start bringing our uh, resource loops closer to home, no matter where we live on the planet. So there's a number of people in the world that are doing this big work. And Jeff Lawton is one of them. And so it was a real honor to have him here uh, with us last June. And most likely, hopefully, he'll be returning again. And we also have been hosting other people that have been doing large-scale global work um, to help really further the, the interests of humanity's um, stay here on this really amazing planet. And um, so this is the work that we want to continue to do. And we'd love uh, any support from any of the listeners out there um, to plug in and contact us via our website, www.regenerativedesign.org. And our goal is to also be putting more and more general information up there on the website so people can have access to what's possible and what people are doing on the planet because it's quite inspiring. And it also starts to lead us into um, hope rather than uh, despondency for the future. And now sit back and enjoy this interview with Jeff Lawton of the Permaculture Research Institute of Australia. Welcome to the new school. 
My name is Penny Livingston Stark, and I'm really happy to be here with my friend and colleague, Jeff Lawton, who's here uh, teaching a training here at the Commonweal Garden. And I have heard about jo Jeff's work for many, many years, especially remarkable work that he's doing with renewing and regenerating dry lands. But he's also um, been a very important figure in the whole movement of permaculture design. And he's doing really beautiful, big, credible projects that are making a real big difference out there in the world in land restoration and helping renew, you know, some very uh, challenging sites in some very challenging places on the planet. And so I have a deep admiration for Jeff and the work that he does and the places that he goes. So um, it's a real honor for me to be able to introduce and interview him and spend some time uh, helping the listeners become more familiar with with his work. So welcome, Jeff. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so why don't you tell the li listeners a little bit about what it is that you are doing and what are some of the projects you're involved in? Yeah, I'm um, a director of the Permaculture Research Institute based in Australia, and we work on sustainable design projects around the world using the design science of permaculture to uh, restore damaged landscapes and uh, also restore people's understanding of the environment uh, to build cultural stability in the landscape and the culture of peoples. So we've, we've been working on projects for some 15 years now and I've covered 25 different countries as uh, teachers and consultants. And um, in recent years, we've been doing a lot of work um, focused in the Middle East. And um, some of the landscapes we've been working in very challenging, very salted, very dry, uh, culturally very ancient, some of the most ancient cultures on the earth. And um, we've come up with a good result and uh, we get keep getting invited back to take on more and more difficult and recently larger and larger projects, larger in size and, and also larger in importance. And, um, and it's been a big adventure and, and we're pulling more and more people into that event, training people up as our main focus now to uh, take part in the, in the project work. Could you tell us a little bit about the project you're doing in Jordan? Because that was a pretty remarkable story. Yeah, our original work in Jordan started in 1999. Um, and we were invited by a Japanese aid organization uh, funded by the Japanese government aid, JICA, to work in partnership with the Jordanian government. Um, and through an interaction of a local NGO that the government in Jordan chose, we, um, we were given the job to demonstrate sustainable agricultural use of a project site in the Dead Sea Valley, just, just across the valley from Jericho on the West Bank, a few kilometers from the Jordan River, 
um, and just just a short distance to where Jesus was christened. And this um, this project was sided in very flat and very salty, um, very degraded landscape. And um, we laid out a, a, a diverse system, but um, initially there was a main design of water harvesting. Um, a very limited amount of rain, but significant enough to change the landscape and come up with a good result. So we we got a um, a landscape recovery that shocked people in relation to the repairing the salt in the in the soil through environmental influence, positive environmental influence, and um, we built the site into a productive site and also demonstrated uh, building and energy techniques and waste system techniques that all could be replicated by local people. And that work went on to inspire the Ministry of Agriculture to uh, study our system and uh, take up our system in, in, in their agricultural research and um, also other environment groups in, in Jordan. And um, now we've had a, a flurry of inquiries from from different organisations to fund the extension of our work through Jordan and, and other countries in the Middle East because a lot of people want to see a, a, a sustainable and peaceful Middle East and um, this is uh, one definite way that you can come up with a, a more stable situation. So it's been, a, it's been an honour to work with the local people there um, and it's led to work in, in Syria Iraq and Egypt. Yeah, um, didn't you have some, you know, really record growth um, achievements from some of the plants and trees that you planted there? Yeah, well, some of the results we got were were most unusual because the Ministry of Agriculture told us originally that there was quite a few crops we wouldn't be able to grow um, because of the salt levels. Um, and um, things like uh, figs and grapes and pomegranates and uh, guava and citrus were all trees, fruit trees that were recorded as not growing in the high salt levels. But um, our, our main theme of design was to not emphasise on pumped aquifer water but to majorly harvest all the rain on the site and any surplus rain from runoff of roads nearby and the rain's not salty. Um, although there's only six inches of rain in a year, there's considerably enough falling on 10 acres of land to um, start to diminish the salt in the soils. So uh, that, with other techniques like using strong desert pioneer trees to nurse the fruit trees into um, resisting the initial salt and then reducing the salt later and also using organic matter to um, break down in the soil and increase the life in the soil and, and um, actually support a sort of water holding landscape which repels the salt and perches a freshwater aquifer. So there's a number of techniques that, that helped us 
grow crops that shouldn't grow, and that 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 shocked the Ministry of Agriculture. And then we got a result from from them to help us and uh, extend our system. So it was really um, proving what we could do, so that we could um, get help from local organisations to extend these systems out to local people. And that's the sort of result we like to get. It really stood out there. And uh, if people look close enough, they'd notice it actually stands out everywhere. But <laughs> when you're in such a, a devastated landscape, it, it's very obvious when you get a good result because you're, you're in a, a scene of, of ancient damage. So to see a sort of productive organic oasis come up is, uh, is uh, something that gets noticed. You were also doing some work in Vietnam. Was there anything that you'd like to share, any stories about those projects? Originally, I, I worked in Vietnam with uh, Japanese aid organizations as well, um, working on colonist blocks that were deforesting large areas of land to put in coffee. Um, and um, that was a, a very difficult situation because it's such extreme hard landscape a long way from from roads and and towns and we laid in demonstration sites to help people put in shade coffee and diverse overstory of productive trees to get an organic production of coffee in the shade and then later on <coughs> we started to work with um, a wonderful NGO in Hanoi who have five projects in Vietnam, one in Laos and one in China, southern China. And our main mission there was to help them set up a permaculture demonstration site near the Laos border where there's been a lot of rainforest removal and continuous, continued removal. Um, and um, we worked they're teaching courses and setting up um, diverse demonstration of sustainable food productions um, on a tropical to subtropical climate. And uh, it's a very important work because the, the, the last of the rainforest in Vietnam is on the border with Laos there. And it's a, of a particular quality that's um, kind of the last of its kind. And um, our, um, our counterparts there do a fantastic job in uh, extending our work. So now we've formed a, an organisational partnership and um, that work goes on to this day and extends out through more and more projects all the time. Um, as, as Vietnam modernises and industrialises, some of the ancient knowledge of um, old systems is being lost and we're adding in new appropriate design and um, saving some of those old systems. And together they make a really appropriate way of uh, creating sustainable production. Yeah, great. It's really, really remarkable. I've seen a few little videos and photos of those projects. And it's just it's really, it's, it's jaw-dropping work that's happening over there. And... You know, it's really great to, for people to be interested in this because I think the world really needs to know more about this work that's happening. Um, 
how did you get into this? How did you learn about all these techniques and technologies? How did you get to be so good at what you do? Um, well, it was really an iteration of events that started off for me um, as an immigrant to Australia in 1979 from England. I started to see the word permaculture around the area I was living and, and um, it seemed to be very curious and an unusual word and I wondered exactly what it covered. And um, I started to get involved with local groups who were promoting the concept of uh, sustainability through design and the um, extension of, of practical applications of permanence in culture as a way to design future sustainable existence. And um, design is something that interests me and um, I think a lot of thinking people are interested in functional design And I think even more people are interested in, in aesthetic design. But the marriage of good function to meaningful design with a purpose of sustainability is a marriage of, of, of function and form which becomes aesthetic. So... As a, an engineer by trade, I like to understand how things work. And that led to um, an application of permaculture by design in the way I built my first house as a passive solar design, how I designed my first waste systems for, for not just recycling household garbage, but also the grey water out of the house and the sewage systems of the house. I started to understand there were things we could design to make things function not only better, but as a, as a positive influence on the environment rather than a negative influence. And the design challenge seems as if it became endless, that there was, there was every which way you look, you can find a better way to be more sustainable by design which seemed to point out that most functional design that we actually exist around and in and and condone is not as good as it could be if we're if we're really after sustainability as a as a positive and abundant future so this design idea challenge concept way of living became more and more of an interesting application and meaningful way to live. So everything that we were studying in permaculture seemed to be something that we could improve on in relation to conventional application of design and human settlement. And of course there's a living system. Most people think about living systems, organic gardening and things like that, but that's just a small part of it really. It's, it's, uh, it's an essential part of it, but it's not everything we need. It's part of it. So um, it, it led on to me that I, I needed to learn more about it and 
and that was a natural progression to taking courses and ended up taking a design certificate course, which is a course that I now teach and that actually teaches people to understand design and be able to see the necessity for design of sustainable systems and gives you a framework and a toolbox of operations of how to approach this large subject because it is a large subject, it's not a small subject. It's naturally somewhat complex. Like ecosystems are, they're not completely understandable but they're not something that you can't understand the way they function. You can understand the way they function. You may never understand all the mysteries of an ecosystem. So it makes it endlessly interesting and something that you can apply as a lesson to sustainable design and the way you live. And, of course, today, that's, that's in the news every day. Sustainability is the buzzword. Um, so there was, there was an, an, an ongoing study that became a life study, became a profession, I became a consultant advising people on these systems. I became an implementer of systems, a designer and, and eventually a teacher. And that's led on to being an a international consultant and an international teacher. And um, now a director of, of charities that extend these systems internationally. We'll be right back in a moment. I'm Penny Livingston-Stark from the Regenerative Design Institute at the Commonweal Garden in Bolinas, and I'm interviewing Jeff Lawton of the Permaculture Research Institute in Australia. So what are some of the charities that you've started that you're currently working with right now? We have a um, registered charity of the Permaculture Research Institute in Australia, Permaculture Research Institute North America, um, we're affiliated with the Permaculture Association of Britain, and we have a Permaculture Research Institute of Jordan. So all those um, organisations are tax deductible for donation, and we're also um, working with and directing a new charity registered here in California, permaculture across borders those organizations set up demonstration sites education centers um, that network information locally regionally nationally and internationally and educate people in permaculture design through courses uh, hands-on grand skills workshops of the physical application and implementation of, of systems and technologies and train future project workers to go out on the distant project sites um, with internships. So that theme is repeated through developing countries and developed countries 
as uh, an ongoing extension of our work. And um, right at this point in time, the interest is exponentially increasing internationally almost everywhere because I think um, it's common knowledge now and the evidence is overwhelming that we have serious problems with our potential future being even the slightest bit sustainable. I mean, it seems extremely obvious that our present mode of operation of civilised activity, if you can call it civilised activity, is completely unsustainable. So it's, um, it's not going to be an intelligent end to the human race if we die of civilization. <laughs> and um, and um, our growing economy is obviously shrinking the environment. So we, uh, we have an answer for that where the global economy could be a positive effect on the environment and we as a species could be the most positive effect. In fact, there are classic examples in all the ecosystem and environmental models where there are never negative effects without equally positive effects and there are never positive effects without potentially equally negative effects. So we as a species could be as positive as we are presently negative. It's just a matter of getting in the right gear of operation. We need a design system to do it. And we believe we've got it pretty much. We've got the mainframe and we're refining it and we're encouraging people to engage in our system and, and help us refine it. And if enough of us just move towards that positive direction, it'll tip the balance in the, in, on the good side and the positive side. It'll also moderate our population explosion because we'll understand that wealth is something that goes beyond money. Wealth in a dying world is not really worth the economy. Um, wealth in an abundant world doesn't have to involve an economy on a financial monetary basis. It involves other values, clean air and clean water and clean food, sensible housing and community and warmth and friendship come pretty high up on the list. So you've answered my next question, but maybe you might want to add to it. My next question was going to be, what do you think motivates people to be interested in permaculture? And I think you really addressed that, but I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to add to that at this point. I think people want to do something meaningful. Really, a good life is a meaningful life, and it's one that feels as if it, it, if it, as if time expands. Time expands with meaningful action, and life is something that we all obviously love, and I think really most of us, if not all of us, actually love life on Earth and the planet. So. If it feels like you're spending more time here, your time is expanded through the experience, and that comes from meaningful action, 
which has a common sense application of just simply understanding design that harmonizes with the world and its energies and its life systems, creation itself. You feel like you're actually part of creation, a complementary part, and that's something that, that really gets people buzzed. They want to know how they can engage in that. And um, we're in the information age, so there's a good chance we could get on that side of the fence. It's not it's all not all looking positive out there at the moment, but there is a possibility we'll we'll get into positive action on the majority of the world. And um we can only we can only hope that that's that's where we'll go. I mean, you can't give up when you when there is a chance. Uh, but um, the world still has increasingly serious problems, and then and the problems of the world continue to become more complex, where the solutions continue to be absurdly obvious as you work with design systems like permaculture. Yeah, so, so is that, I'm hearing in what you're saying that potentially that's what motivated you to get involved in permaculture, you know, that it gave you hope and that you saw a solution and, you know, the desire to be, mean, you know, have a meaningful work. Is that what, is that correct? Is that what got you interested in permaculture from... I'm not sure whether I saw that far into it, actually. In, in, in 1980, when I first started to get involved, I was interested in that sort of lifestyle of self-sufficiency, which was kind of a dream of the 60s and early 70s. And, and, and that had kind of faded with me growing up in England uh, in a small overcrowded country with not an easy access to land base. Arriving in Australia, I saw another opportunity of larger land with a small population. And, and I suppose that was my main interest, was, was somewhat selfish. So I, I wanted a, a self-sufficient, non-complicated lifestyle, um, attracted to the sort of good life of being on the land and clean and organic and... Um, and I wasn't particularly driven to save the world or help other people with the, that solution. But um, after a while, that I realised that they, you can't run away and, and, and hide um, the, the, the nasty effects of pollution and climate change and population pressures eventually roll over you anyway. So I felt after a, a while that uh, having understood design I needed to help people and that became a, a, a an occupation it became a profession and um, when you get a result people ask you back and if you keep getting a result it's hard to say no because you feel obliged to help people find the solution themselves and produce other people who can help other people find a solution. So we're, we're a self-breeding system of expanding teachers, consultants and designers. So 
that are, are kind of breeding out across the world. We've almost covered every country. We probably have covered every country, I think, now. And it's a matter of time now whether we can be quick enough to turn public opinion, national policy, international policy around to something that's common sense and, and quite easily achieved. We just have to know the direction to go. It's not about protesting about what we don't want. <laughs> it's about defining very clearly what we do want and how we go about that. So since you've been involved in permaculture and you've taken your training, what were some of the, what, what did you do right after? So you take a training, they load you up with a lot of information from you know, all the different possibilities and all the different kinds of solutions and all the sets of principles that you know, we work with in permaculture. And you walk out of that training with your head full of ideas and information. What did you do after that when you left your training? Well, I went home and started gardening because the one thing about gardening is that you get a connection to a micro-environment in a small garden and all the principles of the environment and ecology, but you get a direct feedback from the energy you put in to the energy you get out. So immediately you get a, some connection and lesson of sustainability. Sustainability is an energy audit between the energy input to the energy output. And if you have enough energy output in surplus to maintain and replace a system, it's sustainable and any extra is your production. And that's indicated immediately in soil health when you're dealing with a garden and on a broader area of farm. So most of us have some access to small pieces of land. Even if we don't own land, we can find some way to garden and practice the basic principles of sustainability and supplying some of our needs. I was also in the process of building my first house and designing that house, and I could immediately design that house with passive solar aspects. Um, and I started to apply the technologies of waste recycling and um, natural waste systems and reduced energy consumption um, and generally reducing my fingerprint, my, my footprint changed and then I could see why I could apply those systems and how much I could reduce my footprint and I realised that if we worked together in communities that are already in position. We don't have to create new communities. The communities we have could work together to actually have a beneficial effect on environment. We can have a positive footprint, not a negative footprint. So um, I joined permaculture groups and I started to cooperate with other people to fast track my understanding and applications. And, and it just kept leading, leading from there. It became a very interesting lifelong game um, that continues. I'll never get to the end of the game, but it's good fun playing. Yeah. 
Do you see, since you've been involved in it, you got involved, what, about 15 years ago when you took your first training? Is that how long it's been? Yeah, 1983. 1983. Do you, have you seen permaculture really become much more elevated and more sophisticated culturally throughout the world uh, since then in terms of, you know, governments signing on and... Um, larger organizations, NGOs, you know, uh, playing, you know, much bigger game than just people kind of doing their own thing in their gardens since? Yeah, it, it's been continuously increasing. Um, and um, I think it's actually exponential. It's increasing faster now than ever before. Um, in the last three to four years, um, it's been enormously fast. Um, the event, recent events in history which have shocked people globally since 9-11 and Afghanistan, Iraq, um, the Asian tidal wave, tsunami, Katrina, climate change, acceptance, all of these things have, have brought many, many people out of denial. And until you accept that you have, uh, there is a problem, and you're in it, you're part of it. Um, you don't look for solutions because you don't accept that you need a solution. There has been a major turning of people. And now we're working on the largest designs. They're just getting larger all the time. I was working with governments and the United Nations and World Bank funding. Um, we're accepted at the, the highest levels of design. So um, there are many scientists who are now working with on global cooling rather than global warming in relation to environmental enhancement to increase the cloud base and cool the global weather systems. And that's something that's on the agenda in a big way, and it's being legitimised as we speak, that major international funding needs to be aimed at global cooling through environmental enhancement and reforestation of major areas. And that's, that's having, uh, that's, that's got to be the largest stuff you can get into. So I'm, I'm imagining we're going to see whole country policy on water harvest and reforestation as an application of permaculture design. We're already working with whole country systems in the Middle East. And, um, and we'll see um, the Gulf region where there is uh, a lot of surplus economy um, feeding back into environmental environment in the next year or two, setting an ex a, a global example of drylands which, um, which will be sort of the pinnacle of our work, I think, in, in dry land um, restoration. And hopefully that will be a global model for dry lands because desertification is a major, one of the major issues. Yeah. So even though you know, permaculture is in the dictionary now, um, it's not quite a household word yet. And... I'm curious, why do you think that is? Why do you think it's so difficult to get 
the word permaculture out into the mainstream media and, and consciousness, even though there's that probably millions of people out there on the planet who have been trained up and have been doing this work. I know a lot of people aren't waving the permaculture flag or even using the word permaculture, but then a lot of people are. And I'm just wondering why you think it's it, it's just not taking off like wildfire in the media and that people aren't just talking about it on the front page of the newspapers because it is really remarkable, the solutions that are at hand, and some of them are just so simple um, as well. Well, good things take a while to grow, but they can, they, they're, they're very enduring. So you're, you're refined quality trees take a long time to grow and then they, then, then they last for a long time. But the fast systems are usually the, the, the negative damaging things, they're opportunistic. Permaculture is not an opportunistic thing. Permaculture is about permanence in culture. And it takes a while to refine permaculture as something that is um, permanent and builds a enduring, endlessly sustainable event. So it is something that's being refined. It's not simple. There's no such thing as a simple permaculture. It can't be simply defined without an understanding of the environment you're in, the climate you're in, the landscape you're in, the culture you're in, the situation you're in generally. So it's something that will kind of creep up behind us, whether we call it permaculture or not. Sustainability is definitely a buzzword. The search for sustainability is almost a frenzy at the moment. The, the, the use of the word sustainability is a buzzword for opportunistic people. But unless it's proven to be permanent, then it's obviously not sustainable. The results that we're getting on the ground are permanent and they're slowly being noticed more and more and more. And the, and the moment of awareness that people come to with permaculture, the aha moment, is when they realise it's simply a system of design. It's a design science that designs sustainable human habitat as an environmentally enhancing system. And it's... Nothing but that. That's all it is. It's a system of design. And it, and it enhances the environment as we develop human habitat. So there's an interest when people realise that it is interestingly complex and not something that is rocket science and you can't understand it but it's not something that can be categorised as simplistic and, and, and given a, a buzzword logo. It's something that has complexity and interest and it redefines the, the, the quality of um, 
human culture. It gives us our identity back. It gives us our fingerprint. It gives us our, our personality as a, as a populace, as a bioregion, as a culture. And then it becomes something that is completely anchored in our psyche. It's actually like an evolution of thinking. We may be evolving into a different way of using our thought processes. Because the one common thing you find about permaculture people is they're not afraid to think through problems into solutions. The problem is the solution. It's a thought process in the way you approach the problem so you can turn it into a design solution. And that may be an evolution in a style of thinking through what we observe. And I, I, I could say that I may be seeing that in the, in, the, in the next generation of students that are coming through. They are moving so quick um, that I'm sure they'll, they'll, they'll be going many, many times faster than we are now as, as some of the early pioneers of, of this system. They'll leave us in the shade as they become the climax species of the canopy. What's one of the more inspiring projects that you've, or results that you've seen as a result of permaculture design and permaculture work? There's one that comes to mind. I'm sure there are many, but just one that comes to mind. The establishment of a whole community of people in a bioregion that are sufficient to themselves, the local group action that has allowed people to feel safe and secure within their local district, within their bioregion, is a, uh, a wonderfully charming and an rich experience. So some of our local group action where hundreds of people have adopted systems, they're not perfect, but they're many, many times more sustainable in supplying their needs and dealing with all the functions of general life in a way that has a good footprint um, energy systems, waste systems, ha housing designs, food, food systems, animal systems, all the things that we need for a sustainable existence being shared between peoples in a region makes one feel so hopeful and so comfortable and so insured it has to come out way in front of any of these adventurous projects. I mean, there are many adventurous projects in quite exotic locations that you could talk about. But when it really comes down to it, there's nothing quite as wholesome as people tolerating each other, cooperating with each other, harmonising with each other, sharing their experiences around understanding their local sustainable design systems. Um, because you just feel safe, contented, 
happy and insured in regions like that. And when I arrive in places where that action is happening, there's a particular feeling that I think, yeah, I feel like I'm home again. I feel like I've got that homely feeling and I feel safe. And I know that there are people caring for each other in this particular way, in this way, that we've got a sustainable solution to most of our problems and we're working towards more of them. And, and that's, that's what we need to do. It only ever really affect change at a local level. I go to sort of projects and I, I set up stuff and I leave them with it. But they have to set things up at a local level and get into that caring, sharing, um, sustainable mode of action. And it gets, uh, it gets really good. It's a, it's, it's a different way of living and, and we, we definitely need that. Yeah. You have a very wonderful quote that I think we put on our website about how, you know, all the world's problems can be solved in a garden. So in many ways, you know, for people, for listeners, you know, when you think about, well, what could I do? You know, I think growing a garden could be a really good step towards creating the very vision that you're, that you're expressing right now, don't you think? Yeah, well... That's where many of us start, and your experiential sort of journey starts there. You get this almost mysterious ex experience. Well, thanks, Jeff. It was really a pleasure talking to you, and I look forward to future collaborations with you. And, uh, you know, you'll be doing some more teaching here at the Commonwealth Garden. And um, it's just been really a joy having you here. So thank you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.